You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rufus McQuarrie saw it all happen above the Black Ridge line of the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. Rufus operated a mine there. On clear nights, he would drive his pickup truck to the top of a mountain that he and his men had spent the day hollowing out. He would take his telescope, a 12-inch Cassegrain, out of the back of the truck and set it up on the summit and look at the stars. When he got ridiculously cold, he would retreat into the cab of his truck. He kept the engine running and hold his hands over the heater vents until his fingers regained feeling. Then, as the rest of him warmed up, he would put those fingers to work, communicating with friends, family, and strangers all over the world. And off it. After the moon blew up and he convinced himself that what he was seeing was real, he fired up an app that showed the positions of various natural and man-made celestial bodies. He checked the position of the International Space Station. It happened to be swinging across the sky, 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him. He pulled a contraption onto his knee. He had made it in his little machine shop. It consisted of a telegraph key that looked to be about 150 years old, mounted on a contoured plastic block that strapped to his knee with hook and loop. He began to rattle off dots and dashes. A whip antenna was mounted to the bumper of his pickup truck, reaching for the stars. 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him, the dots and dashes came out of a pair of cheap speakers zip-tied to a conduit in a crowded, can-shaped module that made up part of the International Space Station. Neil Stevenson is the author of the novels Zodiac, Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon, The Baroque Trilogy, which includes Quicksilver, The Confusion, and The System of the World, Anathem, and D, and a collection of essays, In the Beginning Came the Command Line. His new book is Seven Eves. Thank you for joining me, Neil. It's a pleasure to be back. Neil, this book takes place in outer space, and we always like to see, and we often see outer space and space as this empty, it's a vacuum, it's empty, there's nothing there. You can just mow those spaceships around like crazy. That's <laughs> not exactly <laughs> what's happening around Earth now, is it? Well, there's... Uh... Uh, there's truth to to both ends of it. There's um, uh, for the most part it is empty, but when you do bang into something, you bang into it pretty fast, and so uh, bad things happen. We have actually conquered space, but what we've conquered it with is trash, <laughs> haven't we? Yeah, it's actually a, a concern among people in the space business that uh, we've left enough orbiting junk in in space that you actually have to plan uh, space missions in order to avoid it. And every so often, two of those pieces of junk will just happen to crash into each other. And because they're going at such a huge velocity, that usually causes one or both of them to shatter into smaller pieces that kind of spray out in in new orbits. Uh, and the concern has been raised that that process could snowball one day and suddenly fill a low Earth orbit with so many pieces of junk zooming around in different orbits that it would make it impossible for us to go up into space in the manner we've be become accustomed to. 
when you started to write this book, one of the things that I thought I found so in, enjoyable about it was the fact that though this is a book, it's set in the future and it begins with the moon being destroyed. That happens in the first sentence. There's no spoilers there. That's an interesting preposition. What made you come up with that? Well, I, I wanted to write a space arc book. I mean, there's enough books about space arcs to constitute kind of a minor subgenre unto themselves. And I had read one of those when I was a little kid. And it sort Which of, one? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I mean, I've totally forgotten the author and title, but I must have been, you know, eight or ten years old. Um, and um, so I always kind of wanted to write one, but the, it, it turns out to be hard to come up with a, a finely calibrated enough disaster scenario. Uh, if 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 the end of the world comes suddenly, we don't have time to build an arc, and so you can't write an arc story. And if it takes a long time, if it takes hundreds of years, then we would probably come up with some better solution than building an arc. So you've got to come up with a scenario where uh, the the people of the world have got, say, a couple of years to prepare uh, to build an arc, uh, and um, and and it's sufficiently obvious that no one can deny that it's happening the way that people deny climate change is happening. So I figured. Yeah, blowing up the moon would be pretty obvious, and that, um, and that then if that that process happened that I was talking about earlier with the space junk, where you know one you know a few pieces turn into a larger number of pieces, that that would give me exactly the sort of timeline I would need to write my space arc novel. This book is fun. It's kind of in a way almost retro in in the way that you approach the uh, space technology. And in fact, I think it's deliberately retro in many ways in that you celebrate and find use for and talk quite a bit about using what I would call trailing edge technology to explore space and even outmoded space uh, technology because what's good enough is good enough. Well, they don't have time to develop new technologies. They've got a couple of years, so it's a pretty easy call that they're just going to make more copies of the rockets we've already got, not do a lot of R&D. Uh, and so, yeah, the, 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 the stuff that, that people uh, go into space with, the tool set and the knowledge, is pretty much what we have today. Uh, and they have to find new ways of making use of those resources um, in order to, to survive, uh, which is, you know, enough of a constraint to, I hope, make for an interesting story. It's really an exciting read, and I love all the, the ways that um, there are places where we somewhat expect kind of vacuum doors and twisting portals and stuff, but you've got people doing things with mechan purely mechanical means, and I think that, that that's a really interesting call. Science fiction can cover an incredibly broad range of possible futures, and some of those are full of awesome high-tech stuff and new inventions and hyperspace and and all of that. Um, but this is not one of those. Uh, it, yeah, at least the first part of the book isn't. The, the, there's a later part of the book where we see some more advanced technologies. But uh, no, I didn't. I didn't want to. Uh, to invent any wacky new physics or or uh, come up with any game-changing uh, technologies for the first part. 
this apocalypse that you create is really, it's unique, I think, in the realm of apocalyptic fiction in that you have this two-year hardcore uh, time limit from the time the moon explodes to the time that all life on Earth is set to be extinguished. And I think you do a great job of creating uh, the perspective of people on the Earth, off the Earth. And I'd like you to talk about developing characters who are living in that arc and creating the character arcs for people who are like headed towards a, a pretty quick ending. Well, my uh, my observation uh, from reading history and just seeing humans in action is that um, when something terrible happens, like a war or a disaster, uh, you know, by and large, people tend to rise to the occasion. Uh, when you read media accounts. Of, of these things, it seems like they're always trying to describe scenes of panic and, uh, and, and looking for cases where people behave badly, and people do. But, uh, you know, on the whole, uh, I think people rise to the occasion and, and show their, their better sides. So that's largely what's going on with the characters in this book. This, this situation has, has arisen nothing to be done about it. So let's just buckle down and, and see what we can do. You do a great job with family sagas. You you That would play a, a big part in Reem D, and, and it plays a big part here. And I, I like the sense of families lasting for so long. The Macquarie family, for example, is a great example <laughs> and not uncunningly named. So uh, wh- how and why did you create the Macquarie family and bring them into this uh, story? Well, I know... Uh some some families that are in the mining business, uh, and um, they have got a sort of very pragmatic, um, get it done kind of mentality, um, combined with uh, a, a lot more technical sophistication than they're sometimes get, given credit for. So <clears throat> these are people who uh, they're not just out there with a pick and a shovel, but they're making use of of high, the most high tech stuff. Um, so I thought that that was a pretty natural uh, match for for a story like this, and um, the uh, I, I knew going in that um, asteroid mining was going to be a, a key part of this because you you can't take up enough stuff into orbit from the ground to really build much, and so these people were going to have to get really good at building new structures out of asteroids and comets. So. It seemed like a natural choice to have uh, a character up in orbit already who was an export, expert in, in mining and, uh, and, and then to have that person kind of rooted in a, a family down on the ground. I I love the the way the character she this character is uh, Dinah, and I love the way that you this dynamic you set up between her and Ivy, and I think that that really that drives the whole novel in a really interesting way. The first part we have um, just these two individuals who are kind of a yin and yang, and really propel the human race forward. Well, thanks. Yeah, the the other character you're talking about is Ivy Shao, who's sort of running the International Space Station uh, at the the beginning of the book, uh, and um, has a a a, a close uh, friendship with with Dinah, the asteroid miner. So yeah, a lot of the the first part of the book is about their relationship and the ups and downs that they go through, and the ways that they kind of support and reinforce each other. 
in a book like this, one of the things that is so much fun to read are these just blocks of description of uh, technology. And I think you do a great job of turning technology itself into a character and what we're forced to do like in these kind of like really hard circumstances. It's just fascinating to see that play out and to play that out through the agency of the human characters. Uh, there's a really interesting interaction that happens there that I think is really the core of science fiction genre itself. Well, the, uh, the, the, the capabilities of technology and the failings of technology, its limitations, its, its, its ways of going wrong, um, are, I, I think, a rich source of, <clears throat> of, of plot. They're a rich source of story. Uh, you, you don't want it to be entirely about, about machines, uh, but um, the, the situations that arise when uh, when um, um, something goes wrong or when something needs to be fixed or improved. Uh, are, those are the kind of things that present characters with the, the challenges um, that, uh, that I think can make for, for satisfying storytelling, even if you're a reader who doesn't care about the, the technology per se. I would agree, and I think that that's one of the things that is so craftily done in this book is to weave together the uh, story arc problems, the, the narrative problems with the characters who are forced to overcome both their own limitations and the limitations of the technology. All of this cannot have been easy to plot out for you. Is this something that you did kind of off the cuff, or did you, how much of the of Izzy did you have to design before? And Izzy goes through so many iterations. Izzy is a character, huge character herself. So Izzy is what the the characters in the book call the uh, International Space Station, <clears throat> and it's a somewhat more evolved version of it. The book starts a few years in the future, so there's more stuff added onto it. Um, so yeah, I was able to take the International Space Station as it is today, which is a very thoroughly documented thing. There, there's nothing you can't find out about it. And to add on some extra bits and, and pieces to, um, uh, to expand it a little bit. And then later it goes through uh, so many transformations over the course of the book that it becomes pretty much unrecognizable. Uh, but it starts with the core of the International Space Station as it is today. And the first big addition, in fact, when I started reading this book, I'm thinking this book could take place at the very this very moment in time. And then when we first meet Izzy, I realized, no, it's got to be a few years in the future because there's one big chunk of Izzy that's not there yet. So talk about placing that chunk there and the science behind it and it must be fun to research this kind of stuff. Who do you get to talk to to uh, to make this stuff seem so real? So in the in the book, um, uh, the character Dinah, the asteroid miner, uh, has been sent up to the International Space Station to work on uh, an asteroid that they've that they've got. This is an asteroid called Amalthea, which um, uh, has been de detected some years earlier in an orbit that makes it dangerous, and so. Uh, it's got to be controlled, and so they find a way to sort of lasso it and bring it back to the space station and bolt it on to the nose of the space station. And then around that, they're building a little complex uh, of labs where they can do experiments on, on asteroid mining. And it's planned to be a really big thing, but because of the inevitable budget cuts and political turmoil, 
Uh, there's only one person working there, and that's Dinah, but she has a whole menagerie of robots that she uses to crawl around on the asteroid and, and do stuff to it. So that's the um, that's the the enhanced space station as we see it at the beginning of the book, and um, it's uh, uh, although it's a fictitious scenario, the the general idea of asteroid mining is a serious one, and uh, I've been able to have some uh, really useful conversations with a company in Seattle called Planetary Resources, which is a, a real live asteroid mining. Uh, company that is in business today. Dyna is makes use of some really interesting uh, robotic technology, and I, I, you have a lot of fun with all the various kinds of technology you get to play with in this book. And I'm wondering how much you orchestrate the technological revelations and the character revelations in advance. Is there some kind of like a spreadsheet or timeline you use, or is this happening? You hold all this in your head. Uh, I'm. I try to hold things in my head when I can. Uh, I mean, there is a fair amount to keep track of, but it's not. It's not that much. It's not more than, than a lot of people take keep track of in their their heads. Uh, so, um, so I try to keep it in my head rather than kind of fossilizing it into a document because it needs to change as you go along. I think too, and that well, that keeps up with the actual the way these things evolve on the ship itself because things change. So you are tracking the story in real time, and I, I think too the uh, a really important part of this is the the prose. You have some really nice turns of phrase. You have some funny character observations, and you also have to do some crisp technological explanations and, and expositions. And I think writing those expositions is a really underrated art to make them fun and easy to read. Do you, like, have to read those aloud? Do you run them past an audience? Uh, the um, – I, I don't. Uh, I um, – uh, that's a in, – in a way, one of the, the, the more – challenging kind of balancing acts that uh, has to be has to be accomplished in order to write a book like this. If you get too uh, bogged down in details, uh, people's eyes glaze over. They just don't want to hear it. It's not contributing to the story. But if you just kind of gloss over all of that stuff and don't talk about it at all, then um, I don't think that works either for the reason I mentioned earlier, which is that uh, people need to um, have challenges in order to, uh, if you're going to tell a good story about them. And in a book like this, the challenges are coming from scientific and engineering issues. Uh, so what I try to do is just, uh, it's it's kind of the, you know, the, I kind of imagine myself sitting down with a reasonably intelligent, curious person uh, and, uh, trying to explain something to them in plain language, uh, and um, and kind of think of it that way. Tech and and economy also the economy also plays an important part in this book. Just in the way it constrains what can be done and and what is happening on the earth and in heaven, so to speak. So how did you uh, weave in the financial aspects of this? You know, just in terms of 
people getting affording to get stuff up because there's somebody who does some kind of ingenious things that prove to be really important to the plot. Yeah, well, at at at, at one point in the middle of the uh, this disaster, somebody stops for a second to to think just briefly about about money because there's a uh, there's a billionaire, a space entrepreneur, uh, who's in the story. And um, and someone sort of thinks to themselves, well, how how can you tell if somebody's a billionaire in circumstances like this? Um, you know, if if they uh, if their money is in in stock, well, there's no stock market. Uh, I mean, the buildings are still standing, but uh, y- you know, shares in a company can't have any financial value when everyone knows the world's going to end. Um, and so, uh, you know, the answer ends up just being having more to do with the, the, the fact that order is being maintained and, and people still sort of follow orders, uh, uh, even if they're doing so in the, the service of a, a, a company that's not going to exist in a, a, few, a few years. There's a comfort in our routines, even if they serve no purpose. Yeah. You also give us a character, uh, Doob. I lo- I love Doob. He's so much fun to be with. Uh, so explain who he is, how he came by his name, and what he does. Uh, that's the familiar the nickname for uh, Dubois Jerome Xavier Harris, who's a uh, an astrophysicist at Caltech. Um, so he is a, uh, a a serious scientist in his own right. Um, but uh, he's also a, a science popularizer. So he's the kind of scientist who can both publish serious papers uh, in physics journals and go on the Today Show and you know joke around with people and and explain science. Uh, and you know, at, at any given time, we tend to have at least one of these people uh, in our society, kind of the designated science authority. Uh, and so uh, Doob happens to be that guy at the moment the moon blows up and his phone starts ringing, as you can imagine, and he spends uh, a good part of the next few weeks um, appearing on TV shows and sort of trying to calm people down and uh, to, to sort of get some perspective on this and get them to see it as sort of a fascinating scientific phenomenon um, instead of, uh, you know, some kind of biblical menace. Then he figures out it actually is a biblical menace, and uh, so that's kind of when the the plot begins. You know, when I was a kid, I I don't know if this— I my dad subscribed to a magazine called Popular Science. Sure, did you? Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I think read that the, every issue. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Those those kind of magazines and that kind of uh, reach, uh, those are really important to our culture. I think that that they really help they help inform us, but also I think they bring people into it. They take the tech out that that they play like a, a really important kind of two way osmotic filter uh, purpose. Yeah, the uh, people are aware, everybody is aware at some level that we're a civilization that's dependent on science and technology in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, it, it can create an awkward situation to be dependent on something that, that's hard to understand or that uh, seems to be veiled behind kind of uh, these abstruse mysteries. So the, the role of 
of individuals and magazines and so on that that try to explain things in in plain English or plain plain any language um, is uh, is actually kind of central, I think, to to keeping the republic going. Well, two in this book when. What you point out and becomes perfectly clear when humankind has to be out in space, there's nothing every we're surrounded by science. It's not just it's not just a luxury. It's not just part of civilization. It's an absolute necessity because that's the only place we're going to get air or water. Yeah, the uh, you know the reality of living in space, uh, at least with our current technology, is that you know it would be sort of like living in the basement of a hospital or, or a research lab um, for your your whole life. There's you know there's there's not green space. There's not you know many of the environments that we like to uh, to, to have around us. Um, so you're living in a completely technological environment. You're kind of like a, a, a patient in the ICU almost. Uh, and uh, that is a, uh, for me, uh, that was one of the most kind of daunting aspects of this book is imagining what it would be like to um, uh, to look at a tree for the last, last time and know that you're never going to see a tree again. You... Describe this as a book about a space arc. The vision of arc that comes to mind is, of course, based on that of Noah. It's one big old ship with a bunch of people on it. That's maybe not the way you've got the space arc designed. And so describe to us how and why you did this. Uh, what these people build uh, is called the cloud arc, and it's a uh, it's based on a very simple and obvious principle that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. So instead, they send up uh, a large number of smaller vessels called arklets, and these things are intended to kind of fly in the general vicinity of the International Space Station, but be separate from it and. Um, you've probably seen nature videos of, you know, swarms of fish and how when a predator comes for them, they'll sort of part uh, and make a hole through the middle. The, the predator goes through, doesn't get any fish, and then the swarm kind of closes back together in its wake. Um, so that's kind of the image that uh, th- that people are thinking of for how the, the cloud arc is going to work when a, a meteor comes through. Um, of course, in practice, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, but that's that's the that's the style of arc that they build. And um, the other big difference from Noah's Ark is that they don't bring animals. So uh, instead of of trying to keep animals physically alive, they bring up the recorded DNA sequences of you know, every living thing on Earth and store them in a, uh, a digital form in the hopes that they can be brought back uh, from extinction later. The cloud arc depends on something that is, seems somewhat obscure when you think about it. Mara, we sit down here on Earth, but we depend upon it every second of our lives. And in space, it's even more important is orbital mechanics. And I think you do a great job of turning orbital mechanics into a terrorizing plot point of tension. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, the um, Yeah, it's uh, uh, things in orbit do not behave always in an intuitive way. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you hit the throttle to go faster, you end up going higher. 
um, your orbit changes its shape. Uh, and um, there's all kinds of, of interactions that you can learn them. Uh, it's, not, it's not beyond human capability to kind of uh, understand them. Uh, but uh, um, the, uh, there, you're, you're correct that, that some of the, the most important plot points in the, uh, the kind of middle section of the book concern some, some really scary maneuvers that they have to uh, accomplish. And I, I think that it's really fun to, to read all these parts. And as we, we come to an end to the, the first part, you kind of like launch us off this platform, and I thought there's an it made an interesting decision with this book. In the science fiction world, in the literary world in general, we all suffer from the curse of J.R.R. Tolkien, who blessed us with a trilogy, and thus everything has to be three books. Uh, this is a pretty long book, and I I glad that you did it the way you did. But what made the drove a decision not to turn this into a trilogy? I actually put a lot of effort into trying to figure out what the what the right format was uh, to use for this. Um, there's uh, the first part of it comes to a pretty clear conclusion, but it it really is just taking you to the threshold uh, of of the the world that emerges down the road, you know, five thousand years later. And so um, I thought it would be uh, really cliffhangerish and uh, annoying to just stop there. So I always knew that there was going to be at least some kind of uh, an epilogue uh, showing, uh, you know, jumping ahead into the, the deep future. Um, and just by uh, kind of working on that and, and seeing where the, the story went, uh, I ended up uh, writing a, a section that ends up being about a third of the uh, the total uh, seven eaves. You know, uh, for the first part of this book, the first two thirds or so, is is I think an absolutely exemplar epitome of what I would call the Arthur C. Clarke almost school of science fiction, where you understand the technology, you take it to its limits, you play out great human dramas within that technology. The second part is, I think, rather different, although it you've still got the, the technological aspects are highly developed. I think it's a, you've uh, entered a, a slightly different genre. What more? It's a little more on the transhuman side than the transportation side. <laughs> so, yeah, good one. So talk yeah. about, I mean, you've done a great job with with uh, transhumanism. How much uh, did you immerse yourself in the other tropes of the genre? And, and, I mean, there's a lot of work on that happening now on the earth right now. Yeah, I didn't do much immersing. Uh, the um, uh, In this case, I had a pretty clear idea of uh, what these people were going to do, how they were going to be different, what techniques they were going to to use, um, and so um, uh, I, I I was aiming at kind of a specific goal that I had had in mind for for quite a few years. I kind of knew what I wanted to do. You so you've had this so you had the second half of the book in mind for years. Yeah, I always knew generally what it was going to look like, what the hardware was going to be, and what the cultural makeup of the the future civilization was going to be. 
Well, that's one of the things I want. I I love so much about it is this is the first half of the book. I I would describe maybe as the future of technology. The second half of the book is the future of culture, and I think that's a really interesting uh, pivot point and a, a different kind of playground. And yet, in both halves, you. Um, managed to craft the science fiction experience of sense of wonder. What does that phrase mean to you? How do you decide when to bring that out? <laughs> when to, yeah. Um, well, the, um, the the first part of the book uh, has got that in uh, mostly in a kind of scary negative way, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, sort of desperate adventure type stuff. And then there's a, a deliberate contrast uh, a sharp contrast at the break point uh, when we go to the far future and we see a, c- a completely different uh, civilization that has emerged from from all of this. And everything is, is as far as they know, is is clean, it's controlled, it's orderly. They've, they've built enormous machines and habitats uh, to um, to keep them safe and give them good places to live. And they're, they're fixing the earth up, they're re-terraforming it. Uh, and and so uh, it's not quite a utopia, but you know it's uh, say it's pretty com- utopian, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, well, it's it's like you know being in Stockholm or Singapore or, or <laughs> Singapore. Yeah, I've been to Singapore. It's it, it's not like that, isn't it? Yeah. So um, so it's that level of of polish and and order, I guess you could say. Uh, but the Earth is is still being uh, sort of turned back on, and and they're 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 bringing back uh, new species uh, of plants and animals to populate the the surface, and and that's a somewhat more more of a wild west kind of environment. You know, uh, the one of the things that I had found so interesting was that. We all want to feel a sense of purpose, that we make a difference. And at the beginning, in the first half of this book, we meet some individuals. We meet a ser- all these great individual characters. And we become very invested in their lives and where they are. And then we kind of leap off the edge of the board. And what, what we see in 5,000 years in the future is that the individual lives have become uh, markers for the culture that... Each of these people has not just made a difference. They've made essentially a, a country, a part of the world. And I think that's a really a powerful statement for what one person, the difference that any one of us can make as an individual when we make a choice. Well, I think we're all kind of suckers for the, the great man theory of, of history. Whether we intellectually believe it or not, uh, we, we tend to see history in terms of, of stories, narratives with, with heroes and villains. Uh, and uh, we, we just can't help imposing that structure on, on history. And that's what they do. That's what the far future uh, people do. Um, when they, they've got complete records of everything that happened among their ancestors during what they call the epic, which is the, the story of how the, the, the survivors of the cloud arc um, got through the first few years. So everything's been recorded, you know, from six different camera angles on on webcams and digitally stored, and and that vast amount of material creates this this the the epic, which is uh, it's kind of like their their Bible and their their epic poem and their 
their constitution. It's a soap opera, uh, and and they they know by heart so lines of dialogue and conversations that happened five thousand years ago among these people who are their kind of their their creation myth of their civilization. Space gone with the wind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, too, and this speaks to the power of your fiction and the power of story, that they call it the epic, that everything, we all define ourselves by our story, and these people are defined by their story, and they look back to to story. And I think that's one of the things that really interests me about this book, to see the way uh, that for all the technology we have, for all the government's weapons, everything else we have, what really keeps humanity together isn't the space arc, it's the story. Yeah, or or tears it apart. Take take your pick. Right, so, <laughs> stories can be used in different ways. And uh, I found it fascinating that in this five thousand years from now, books still exist, with the exception of one book that many of us access now, uh, much to our detriment and waste of time. The uh, well, these people have made the uh, decision uh, not to. Uh, not to go down the same path uh, with with social media, um, and uh, I think that's a it's that one thing has drawn more comment than any other feature of the book, which I find interesting. To me, it was kind of a kind of an interesting thing to throw in, but not a really big deal. But uh, but but people who read the book now are are kind of uh, fixating on on the fact that that. The, the people of the future decide they're not going to have uh, social media. And it, it's it's all because of the epic. It's because there's some unfortunate uh, uh, side effects of it uh, in in the epic. And, and one of the um, kind of unwitting villains or, or fall guys of, of the epic is is somebody who, who, who spent a little too much time on it. You know... One of the things I, I love about your books is that you have a great sense of humor and also you know how to take somebody down. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, a, there is a takedown in this book. It's in the first part of the book that is just so richly satisfying to read. It's really fun. And, and I think that these are, are aspects that make your books, give them a real... Uh, punch that's fun and also you think wow that's something worth thinking about too well thanks it's uh it must be fun to write those things yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. like kind of do you have to like pace them out for yourself say okay now i can give myself the the super candy part where i'm going to write and really nail somebody <laughs> <laughs> well if if it's too one-sided then mm-hmm. it's just mean and and it doesn't come across as as real uh, so, uh, uh, the best, uh, fall guys or bad guys are the ones who, um, that we feel more empathy with than hostility to, mm-hmm. um, be, because, uh, otherwise it's just a, a cartoon. I like the way that the, um, different clans have been created in the future. When you created the, their precursors, did you know how that was going to play out? I mean... How connected were the first two parts of the book in terms of the, your uh, process of creation? Well, I was trying to uh, 
have it, you know, I had a few ideas about what the future would look like, but I didn't want to sort of have it be predetermined. So uh, I, I sort of felt like the right way to go about it was to start by just doing the best job that I could of telling the, the, the initial story and kind of let the chips fall where they may for the most part. Uh, and then um, if that rang true and if, if that worked, then um, I could uh, I could then jump ahead and, and th- th- that, that becomes kind of like an input, uh, a fixed you know body of information that that is going to drive what happens in, in the future. And then people in the future can proceed kind of adaptively based on on that. The the notion and uh, experience of diaspora is just key to this book, and we've seen so many of them in our lifetime, which is interesting because it's such a big thing to happen in our lifetime. And uh, were there specific current events that informed your notion uh, of diaspora in this book? Well, not so much current events. I mean, I, I I I read history, so I'm in a way in a way my head is more in his, history than it is in the, the present. So, uh, uh, you're right that you know formation of diasporas is a thing that happens over and over again uh, throughout history, and a lot of times uh, some of the most interesting stories, most interesting people are ones who grew up in a, a diaspora kind of situation. We, we find ourselves in space, but we're still squabbling. And I was happy to see uh, in this 5,000 years of war that we managed to have a cold one. <laughs> Just thought, okay. In, in the, the future, the, yeah. re, the red and the blue. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, um, yeah, the, the reality is that, uh, that uh, militarized violence in space is, uh, I think, pretty hard to do. Uh, the um, there's there's nowhere to hide. Uh, the, um, the the ships and habitats are incredibly vulnerable, uh, and um, and so to to conduct a uh, you know, an old school kind of total war between two powers is is pretty difficult to pull off. I, I think it would end up if there if there was conflict, it's going to be sort of more small scale. Uh, more like the kind of thing that we see in sort of uh, asymmetrical warfare in the modern era. <clears throat> One of the things that is really fun about this book is you put us in a position where uh, we're terraforming Earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's an interesting notion. It's a lot of fun. And there are two different schools of this. And I love your different schools of terraforming Earth. So tell us about the diff- about uh, uh, GID and TOT and why so, and so, how. So TOT is, stands for Take Our Time, and it's kind of literally the old school of uh, how to terraform the Earth. I mean, to, to, to provide context, this is now a resurgent civilization with billions of people living in comfortable uh, space colonies, and they've been carrying out a gradual program to cool Earth down and, and, and make it ready uh, to be reseeded with, with life. Uh, so this is a, a plan that spans thousands of years. And um, for a while, the, the mentality is, let's take our time, let's do it right. And that comes to be 
associated with a, a philosophy that what we're trying to do here is to reconstitute the ecosystems of Earth the way they used to be. We'll put giraffes in what used to be Africa, and we'll, you know, we'll put wolverines in what used to be Canada, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then uh, a, a couple of hundred years in the the past of the of the part you'll read, um, there was kind of a new uh, a bunch of new young Turks who came along and said and created an, an, a, a school called GID or Get It Done, and and this was sort of a, a, an expression of the impatience that the the people living in space are all feeling to to get Earth going again and be able to go back down to, to the ground. And it's less, um, they're sort of taking the philosophy that anything that goes down there is is going to be artificial anyway. There is no nature left. Uh, and it, it's, all, it's all created by humans, and there's no point in pretending otherwise. So let's just, uh, let's just get started now and, and make something happen. You have wonderful characters in the far future, but they aren't really human anymore. But they are fun to read about, and we can relate to them. And I'm wondering how you go about creating a future human who is no longer human, yet it has to be relatable to or understandable by current-day humans who are reading your book. I guess it's technically true that they're they're not human in that their, their genomes have been uh, manipulated, but... Um, you know, it's uh, they're no different from um, from from you and me as say, you know, elves in Tolkien or Vulcans in in Star Trek. So they're all bipedal humanoid. They all speak the same language, which is a kind of Russian inflected version of English. Uh, they can interbreed with one another, um, and so um, uh, uh, it. To, to, to say that they're not human or transhuman probably might might make uh, some listeners think that uh, they're way more different than they are. Uh, but it's it's more of a, a, a Romulans and Klingons kind of differentness. Language evolves as well, and you have a lot of fun with language. That's a, always a fun part of the science fiction world is to play with the, what happens to language. Yeah, in this case, uh, it doesn't change much. Because um, because of the epic, so these people may be uh, sort of spread out in a new diaspora of space colonies, but they've all got the same data files with the the records of the epic, and so they that's their entertainment. They they watch that stuff all the time, and so that ends up acting as a kind of buffer to to prevent the changes in uh, in in language that we would otherwise expect to see over such a long span of time. So we end up with a, a, a variant of English that would be understandable to, uh, to you and me. Um, it's got some Russian loan words in it. It's got some Russian uh, uh, orthography, but uh, not that big of a change. And what will you be using 21st century... English to craft for us next. Where will you be going? Do you know? Uh, well, I have a uh, a book that I've started, um, but uh, it's still a little too early to to talk about. Um, so I'm going to have to leave that mysterious for now. I've been speaking with Neil Stevenson. His new book is Seven Eves. Thank you for joining me, Neil. Well, thanks very much. It's uh, always a pleasure. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.